but we'll do it together, right? Seven o'clock, seven o'clock, and it's time to start. Glad that you're here this morning, this evening. Um, I want to do a, an icebreaker with you before we get into our passage and our thought for uh, the night. If you saw my um, announcement, you know we're talking about the parable of the great feast in Luke chapter 14, and it got me thinking about food. So I want you to be thinking about what are the, the most significant events that happen around food in the Bible. I always joke and say that when I find lists, it's just somebody in their basement that came up with the list. Well, I wasn't in my basement, but I was in my office today and I came up with my own list of what I think are the 10 most important events in Scripture that um, kind of happen around food. And what I started to realize was there's a lot of things that happen in Scripture around and involving food or a meal. But I came up with my own top 10 list, so I want you to be thinking about that as well. I think it was last week I was talking about kindness, and I asked, you know, who would you say are the kindest people in Scripture? And I gave you a list. And then I went back and read the comments, and somebody said, you know, Dorcas. Now, how did we miss Dorcas? And somebody said, John, the apostle of love, you know, the one that that took on the responsibility of, of looking after Mary. How did you miss John? So so I'm sure I'm not going to have the same list as you, but um, be thinking about some um, events that happen around food. Post them if you can think of some that you think ought to, ought to be in, in a top 10 list. Um, but here's mine. The top 10 food moments of the Bible. Number 10, I've got Mephibosheth invited to eat at David's table. And you probably wouldn't have that on your list, but it's just a story that I've always loved. And it's such an amazing story of grace. And, you know, David is like my hero. And so I put Mephibosheth invited to seat at David's table. Number nine, uh, Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. It happens pretty often in Scripture, but it certainly speaks to who Jesus was and where his heart was. So I put Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners as number nine. Number eight, this one probably won't be on your list either, but I'm, I put Boaz first allowing Ruth to glean and then inviting her to a meal. It's just a really, it's a touching story. And so that's sort of my uh, romantic entry, uh, Boaz and Ruth. Uh, number seven on my list of the top 10 food moments in Scripture, the killing of the fatted calf in the parable of the prodigal son. And yeah, I know it's a pro- I mean, I know it's a parable, but it's such an important teaching uh, about the, the, the banquet and the, uh, the meal and the fatted calf. In fact, killed the fatted calf has made its way all the way you know, into, into our dictionary and our uh, way of talking. Uh, number six on my list of top 10 food moments, Jesus fixes breakfast on the beach in John chapter 21. The disciples are out fishing and he has a meal waiting for them. And he asked Peter three times, do you love me? I, I thought that's a pretty significant event. Number five, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with, um, with five loaves and two fish. Or Jesus feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves. Or the changing of water to wine, or Elijah and the, the widow of Zarephath, whose oil and grain never run out. Any miracle dealing with food, I've got it number five. Number four on my list of top ten food moments, uh, the Passover. 
in Egypt. Pretty significant event involving food. Number three on my list. Peter's vision of a sheep being lowered down full of unclean animals and God telling Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, I can't eat those things. I've never eaten those unclean uh, animals. And God said, if I say it's clean, it's clean. Again, a, a turning point um, for people like probably you and definitely me. Number two on my top 10 food moment lists, I put Adam and Eve eating the apple all the way back in the book of Genesis. And you're thinking right now, it's not an apple. The Bible doesn't say it's an apple. I know, I'm just messing with you Wednesday nighters, but it was some kind of fruit. So I've got it as number two. And for me, the number one food moment in the Bible, I put the Last Supper. It's got to be on the list somewhere. And I won't argue with you, but, but I'll stand pretty firm on my decision to put it at number one. The kind of a subjective list, I guess. You know, when you think about it, some of the most significant food moments in Scripture are actually things that aren't eaten. You know, there's there's so much that, times that we see uh, Jesus and his disciples fasting and praying. You know, there's probably a lesson there when we think about food. Um, and then you think, too, that Jesus uses food as a metaphor pretty often. You might have put Jesus as the bread of life. almost put that as number one. But I thought that's more of a metaphor. But still, I think it, it would have certainly uh, deserved a place on the list. In John chapter 4, Jesus tells the uh, disciples, um, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And he says, my food is to do the will of the Father. So Jesus uh, refers to food quite a bit. Um, you now we're in this uh, store, in this uh, series, that's what he said, talking about the teachings of Jesus. And again, if you're just jumping on, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14 tonight. And for the most part, we're going to stay right there. So you can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Uh, I think it's a, um, I think it's a timely discussion to have. Um, I think just for what's going on right now, it's a good teaching of Jesus to, to think about. And I'll encourage you as always, first, let us know you're there. Let each other know you're there. I think, you know, it's kind of encouraging to see other people that are, hey, I'm here and I'm listening um, kind of sharing in the thought process with each other. And then also be sure and post in the comments what comes to your mind, you know, kind of what this scripture is saying to you this time around. It's a passage that if you're here on a Wednesday night, you've read it, you've studied it before, but uh, there's a lot of good teaching here. Um, you think about how much of our lives revolve around food. Now, so much of what we do kind of revolves around food and re revolves around meals. When we get together with friends, what do we do? We eat. Think about how many business deals are conducted over lunch. You think about all the, the, the bonding that goes on with families, you know, sitting around a meal at home. Um, you always hear people say, well, that's the problem with America. We're not eating dinner together. And there might be some truth to that. You know, this, this is a time for the family to, to share and to bond. Um, when we were in Tallahassee, Martha came home one evening and said, hey, you want to be in a supper club? I said, nope. It's a supper club. <laughs> she goes, we're going to get together with some other couples. 
and like go to each other's house like once a month or something and just have a meal. I said, yeah, okay, sure. And actually, it, it was such an enjoyable thing just to go to other couples' houses and um, you know just just have a meal together. There's just something that happens around a meal. In fact, if you've ever been to my house, if you've ever been in my little dining area, you know that we have this picture on the wall, kind of a thing that uh, that says um, the fondest memories are made while gathered around the table. And it's signed by all the couples who are in our supper club. And uh, it, it brings back great memories. Um, in Luke chapter 14, the text we're going to be in tonight, there's actually five different references to food in this one chapter. The chapter begins saying that Jesus is at the home of a prominent Pharisee for a meal. And then Jesus talks about a wedding feast and where you should sit when you go to a wedding in the feast. And then he talks about who you should invite into your home when you have a meal. At the very end of the chapter, he talks about salt and how important it is for salt to be salty. But in the middle of the chapter there, he tells a story. And it's the story that we're looking at tonight, the story of the great feast. And the story that Jesus tells is actually predicated on a statement that is made while Jesus is in this home of a prominent Pharisee. Uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 15 is where I'm picking it up uh, here to begin with. Luke 14, 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, heard Jesus talking about who you should invite you know, to, to your table, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Sounds like a good statement, right? Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now we know that Jesus is in the home of a prominent Pharisee, so it's pretty safe to assume that everybody in the home, everybody at the table here is, is Jewish. Um, the people, the guy who just made this statement just heard Jesus talk about the pecking order of society. And then he makes the statement, blessed is the man who eats at the feast of the kingdom of God. Kind of implying we're all going to be there. I'm going to be there. And boy, that's going to be great, isn't it, Jesus? And Jesus hears this man make the statement. And I don't know if there's a pause or not, but Jesus comes to the conclusion, I've got to take advantage of this opportunity to teach these people something. And Jesus makes the decision, I've got to tell you a story. Um, we're going to look at the, the parable tonight. And again, we're going to read it first. It's not very long. And then I want to come back and kind of walk through a couple thoughts about the parable. I'm in Luke chapter 14, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 16. We're just going to read through the parable and then come back to it. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for now, everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, 
go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and, and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, I'm not necessarily wanting to pick apart the parable tonight, but there are a couple of things that we ought to at least agree on, just sort of a baseline here. We know that the master, the one giving the banquet, represents God. Okay, We know that the banquet represents the kingdom. We know that those who were invited originally represent uh, Israel, Jews, uh, the servants or the messengers of God, and those who are invited later, those who are less qualified, uh, represent people who aren't Jewish. But I think it actually goes deeper than that. And again, I don't mean to pick apart the parable, but what I do want to try to do tonight is, what's this mean to me? Why is the Holy Spirit kind of put this in front of me tonight? You know, what what do I need to be paying attention to personally? I mean, if we just figure out who the players are and, and what the parable might mean, um, well, we've killed 45 minutes or so, but you know, what good does that do? So I want you to be thinking about what's God trying to tell me tonight in this parable? Let's go back and kind of walk through it. Verse 16, Luke 14, but I'm in verse 16. Jesus replied, A certain man who was preparing a great banquet invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. In the ancient world, this idea of a banquet, it, it was a big thing. It would have been a tremendous privilege, it would have been a tremendous honor for someone to invite you to a banquet. Ready to invite you to any meal, but especially a banquet. You know, it's hard for us to kind of understand that. If you were to come to my house right now, uh, Martha could feed you. She could get something together, and it'd be pretty good. She's a good cook. But if you just showed up on my doorstep right now, uh, she'd find something for us to sit down and eat. Why? Because I got a pantry that's got a bunch of food in it, and I've got a refrigerator and a freezer and a stovetop and an oven and a microwave. And if all else fails, Burger King and McDonald's aren't very far away. I mean, we would find something to eat and we'd sit down and eat together. People in the ancient world wouldn't have been able to even comprehend any of that. To them, food was not a, a convenience. You know, to them, food was something that you thought about all the time. Where's my next meal coming from? How am I going to get food? And, and to be invited to a, a banquet, that was a, it was a tremendous honor. And you would have taken it seriously. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. I can't come to the banquet, I bought a field. You know, today the, the story might go, we've got inventory at work. I can't come. Verse 19, another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. So the first guy buys field, second guy buys 10 oxen. Uh, that's a pretty significant purchase. These, these are people obviously so far that have some means. They have some money, you know, property, oxen, 
be like me saying, like, my Mercedes is coming into the dealership tonight and I got to go pick it up. Which I don't drive a Mercedes, but. Then the third guy in verse 20, still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. <laughs> to me, this seems like the best excuse of all. I just got married, so I can't come. Uh, I mean, this is a pretty significant life event, right? No fields can be bought and sold. Animals come and go, but you, you don't get married very often. Hey, just got married. Seems like a pretty good excuse. And then I got thinking about it, and I thought, probably not a whole lot of women who would want to turn down an invitation to a big banquet, the home of a really rich person. Well, I don't know. But... What are the things that those three excuses all have in common? These are the excuses of the qualified, of the dignified. What do they all have in common? Well, one, all of the excuses are things that have already taken place. I've already bought the land. I've already purchased the animals. I've already gotten married. I mean, none of it's happening right now, so it's not really uh, prohibiting me from coming to the banquet. But the other thing is, they're all three pretty legitimate excuses. I mean, they're, they're pretty good excuses, right? And they're all three things that, nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with, with doing business. There's nothing wrong with, with buying and selling things. There's nothing wrong with getting married. I mean, there's nothing immoral about their excuses. There, there, there's nothing that's, that's bad or absurd, you know, what it boils down to is all three of these people say, I'm really busy. I'm just really busy and I can't come. And we ought to be able to relate to that, right? When you ask someone that you know pretty well, how's your week going? You're going to get one of two answers, probably some connection, a combination of the two. How's your week going? They're going to say, great. And or they're going to say, but man, am I busy. I'm just swamped. I mean, work is crazy. Um, you know, the, the kids in school and, and uh, you know, trying to keep up with their schedule. Man, I'm just, I'm exhausted. I'm just really busy. There's a book uh, called Essentialism by a writer by the name of Greg McGowan. It is not an easy read. But he talks about breaking um, approaches to life down into the two categories. And the first category he calls an undisciplined pursuit of more. An undisciplined pursuit of more. And he says, this is the American way. This is what our culture conditions us to react. And this is how we're, this is how we're kind of taught as Americans to live. And you just fill up your schedule. You just Fill up your plate. I mean, you just, you take on more and more responsibilities and you take on more and more um, hobbies, more and more uh, things that just pull at you and, and your time and your energy and your efforts. And you're just, you're stretched so thin doing so many things that you don't really do anything really, really well. And it can be really frustrating because we all want to live a life of purpose, but people that are, who are kind of taking this undisciplined pursuit of more uh, uh, tact, it's like, I'm too busy doing everything else to live a life of purpose. 
And then the other approach that he talks about is the disciplined pursuit of less. And that sounds really counterintuitive, right? The disciplined pursuit of less. He talks about the fact that with, with, with that, you start prioritizing what's important to you. And you say, this is important, but it's not as important as this. And I value this, but I don't value it as much as this. And you start giving more time and more effort to the things that you value the most. Less time and less effort to the things that they're not quite that important to you. And what he says is, in order to do this, in order to say yes to the right things, you're going to have to say no to an awful lot of things that aren't necessarily the wrong things. You're going to have to say no to some things that there's nothing bad in themselves. you just got to prioritize your life. You've got to say, this is what's most important to me. And this is where I'm going to spend most of my effort and most of my time. And I said it's counterintuitive. It's countercultural as well. But when you think about it, isn't that exactly what Jesus taught? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you as well. Isn't that what Jesus said? Hey, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all this other stuff. It's just going to fall into place. But most people, and I think most, um, most Americans for sure, but most Christians, we do it backwards. I'm going to seek first the stuff. I'm going to work really hard for the stuff. I'm going to work for all the other things. And then hopefully the kingdom, and by extension my relationship with God, hopefully... That'll somehow fall into place. But that's exactly opposite of what Jesus taught. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Let's go back to the parable. Luke chapter 14, verse 21. We've had the three excuses. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor the crippled, the blind, the lame. So the, the people who were originally invited, the, that first group of people, like I said, they were the dignified. They were the qualified. They were the winners. They had it all together. But they didn't come to the feast. And maybe the reason they didn't come to the feast is they didn't need a feast. They weren't that hungry. No, these are people, like I said, they had, some, they had some resources. They could buy land. They could buy animals. Uh, they could take on a family. So they're not that hungry. I mentioned last week, I think, and I probably mentioned it every week, that when we look at the teachings of Jesus, when we look at parables or commandments or anything, um, the teachings of Jesus ought to convict us. And they ought, to, um, they ought to mold us and shape us, and, and they ought to make us a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. And I think this is one of the, the parables, uh, one of the teachings of Jesus that makes us uncomfortable. When I say us, I'm talking about Americans. I'm talking about those of us who are the qualified and the dignified you know, for obvious reasons, this parable made me a little bit uncomfortable, makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Verse 22, 
Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So the first group that was invited, they give excuses. And then the master says, extend the invitation, broaden the invitation. Now we're, we're bringing in the unqualified, the undignified, the lame, the poor, the weak. Uh, we're, we're inviting now those who don't belong. In fact, I want you to compel them, one version says. Make them come. Those people who, who probably don't belong. I want you to bring them in. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like, I don't belong here? If you've lived long enough, you probably have. I, re- I remember back, um, Martha and I got married in Birmingham, Alabama on a weekend. On Monday morning, I went to work at 8 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so we didn't have a honeymoon or anything. We drove from Birmingham to Pennsylvania. But we did stop and spend the night in Nashville at the Maxwell House Hotel. Now, back in the day, the Maxwell House was one of the nicest hotels in Nashville. I think it's been torn down. I think they've got some new Maxwell House Millennial or something. Millennium, not millennial. Um, but it, back then, it was, it, was a, it was a really fancy hotel. They had this really fancy restaurant on the top floor that overlooked Nashville. And so I made reservations at the, at the uh, restaurant and a reservation at the hotel. And, you know, it's going to be really nice. And we get to Nashville pretty late and we go up and we were eating in this really fancy restaurant. And, and I knew I was in a little bit of trouble when I saw the menu and they didn't have any prices in the menu. So, OK, but hey. I just got married. So um, we have a really nice romantic meal and we go down to our room and it's a really big, fancy room, really nice. And and as soon as we get there, Martha goes around this little uh, uh, corner kind of thing and she's unpacking some stuff and there's a knock on the door. And um, <laughs> you remember this, right? <laughs> I, I opened the door and there's this guy standing there who obviously is dressed like an employee of the Maxwell House, and he's holding a bottle of champagne. And he said, we understand uh, you're newlyweds, and we want to offer you this bottle of champagne, on uh, complimentary of the hotel. Now, I didn't, don't drink, neither does Martha. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know what to do with a bottle of champagne, but, you know, no, no, it's complimentary. And he's sort of forcing this bottle of champagne on me. So I take it, and um, he's standing in the hallway. I'm standing in my room, and, and I look at him and say, well, thank you. And he stands and looks at me like, and he doesn't move. Thank you very much. And he's not moving. He's just staring at me. I really appreciate that. And he doesn't move. And I very slowly close the door in his face. Martha comes around the corner and she goes, what are you doing with that? I said, it's a bottle of champagne. They gave it to us. What are we going to do with that? I don't know. She goes, did you tip the guy? And I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) I told her, you ought to know right now, you just married a very unsophisticated guy from Western Pennsylvania. And the sooner we get back to the hills, the more at home I'm going to be. So, yeah, you know, I obviously, I did not belong in, in that setting. 
But the master is making it very clear to his messengers, to his servants. I want my house full. I want my table full. Um, I want to try something tonight. Um, I have no idea if this is going to work. I figure there's a 50-50 chance this is going to work. If it works, great. Fantastic. I want to try to show you a video clip tonight. And I'm going to tell you right up front, besides the fact that it's incredibly low tech, I want to tell you right up front, I did some research and I think I can do this without breaking the law. I think the format and the form that I'm using and what I'm showing you, I think I'm doing it legally. If it turns out I'm not, somebody bail me out uh, next week or something. But I want to show you a video clip that I think kind of meshes with this parable. It's Matt Klein's laughing at me. You ain't seen nothing yet, Matt Klein. Um, but it's from the 1991 movie, What About Bob? And some of you have never heard of that movie, but it starred Bill Murray as this really eccentric, really paranoid, um, obsessive, compulsive, just guy with all these issues, just incredible issues. And he goes to see all these psychiatrists and, and he's so needy and so smothering. All they want to do is pass him off to the next doctor. So he ends up uh, seeing Richard Dreyfus. And um, he really connects with Richard Dreyfus, but he starts smothering him with all his issues and all his problems. Richard Dreyfus kind of escapes to uh, a, a week's vacation. It is a vacation home. But Bob, Bill Murray, follows him. And he shows up one day on his front porch, needing therapy. I need it. I need it. And Richard Dreyfus is just mortified. What are you doing here? I'm on vacation. I'm not seeing patients. You can't be here. And he basically kicks Bob off his porch and said, you got to leave. You got to go back. And so Bob leaves and he's headed back to town. But while they're on the porch, Bob endears himself to the doctor's wife and his daughter and son. And so the scene I'm going to try to show you is uh, Bob walking back to town and the daughter drives up and stops. They have a conversation and I want you to listen to the conversation that they have. And, um, and she, shares a, she shares an invitation with them, too. And I want you to listen to the invitation. Watch this. Let's see if it works. Nobody here. Leave me alone. I'm all by myself. People use this car? Just us. So, what's it like being the daughter of a brilliant analyst and sleeping in the next bedroom at night when you need him? Is it great? 
No, it's not great. I have problems the same as anyone else. The same as you. You're afraid your bladder will explode? What other ones are the same? Like what? Like what? Well, like analyzing everything to death to see if what I'm feeling is normal. Yes, I have that, yeah. Do you freeze up and yes. turn into wood when you're around a yes. good-looking guy and you don't even know if he likes you or not? Well, not a guy, but yes, I freak. You, you know what, I, I treat people as if they were telephones. If I meet somebody who I don't think likes me, I say to myself, Bob, this one's just temporarily out of order. You know, don't break the connection, just hang up and try again. And does it work? It seems to be. I'm on vacation at Lake Winnipesaukee. Alright? Do you want to come sailing with me on my friend George's boat? <laughs> no. Oh, that's okay, you don't have to. No, I'd love to. Uh, <laughs> it sounds great. I, I, I've never been on a boat and I don't think I can handle it. It just makes my lips numb to think about it. But if your friend is a good sailor and the craft is seaworthy, yes, I will go sailing. Yeah, let's go sailing. I have no other plans. I'm sailing! I'm sailing! There you go. That's the uh, get her done atmosphere there here at Top Place. I don't know if you saw any of that. I don't know if you heard any of that or not, but kind of a, a silly scene. But um, I want to kind of tie that in to the parable that we've been talking about. You know, everybody else uh, saw Bob as just a nutcase. All the other psychiatrists, all they want to do is get rid of him. Pass him off to somebody else. Uh, but Anna, the daughter, the girl in the scene, she saw Bob very differently. And, and you notice the very first thing she does is she shows Bob kindness. Everybody else, if you, if you see the movie, um, everybody else it just thinks Bob is crazy, which he kind of is. But she shows him kindness. Hey, you want to ride? And then she shows him respect. She realizes, you know, this guy's kind of an interesting guy. And she actually starts talking to him in, uh, you know, real conversations. And she finds out that he has something to offer. And you get the sense in just that scene that she starts enjoying being with Bob. And um, she's open with him. You know, he says, hey, you, you know, lucky you. You get to, you know, sleep in the same house with this brilliant psychiatrist. And she says, hey, I got problems, too. You mean you're afraid your bladder's going to explode? You know, I've got different problems. You know, she's really open and honest. You know, you've got problems, I've got problems, everybody has problems. Um, and then she offers the invitation. Do you want to go sailing with me? And Bob's response to the invitation is, I've never been on a boat. And his mouth gets, you know, his lips start going numb. But you can tell he really wants to go. And he's really excited about going. Uh, he's got some concerns, but, oh, I've never, that's not the world I live in. I don't go on boats. But then he goes and there's that scene where he's sailing. 
you know, albeit he's strapped to a mast with a bunch of ropes and he's covered in life preservers, but he's so excited. I'm sailing. I'm sailing. And if you notice, who was the most excited person on the boat? Without a doubt, it was Bob, right? Everybody else is just sitting there. It's his old hat. They've been sailing before. Not Bob, even though he's strapped to the mast. He is so excited because he's doing something that he realizes, I don't deserve to be doing this. You know, what did Bob bring to the boat there? What did, well, what did he do to, to deserve, you know, a ride on the boat? Nothing. Um, what did he contribute to the trip? Nothing. He just accepted the, the uh, invitation. But he got tremendous joy from accepting the invitation. He got tremendous joy when he went sailing. I want to bring it back to Jesus' parable of the great feast. The story begins with the master inviting everyone that you would expect the master to invite. And they all excuse themselves for one reason or another. And then the master invites people that you would not expect him to invite. There's still room. And the master says, I want my table full. I want people in my home. Let me make some observations about this uh, parable and then ask a couple questions. Uh, first observation, those who are full of other priorities are going to miss the feast. When we get so busy doing other things, even if there are other good things, we're going to miss out on the feast. And most people who prioritize other things over the feast do it because they're not that hungry. I don't really feel like I need to be fed right now. I, I can live without being at the feast. People who are really hungry, they're going to say yes. And they're going to say yes pretty quickly. Second observation. Those who are full of self and status and stuff are going to miss the feast. People who are so consumed in their own little kingdom are going to miss the blessings of the kingdom. You know, there's this lesson that we all kind of learn as we grow older. And you certainly learn it in parenting. What to, what to hold tightly to and what to start releasing and hold loosely. The self, the, the status, the stuff. You hold on to those things loosely. Not that they're bad in and of themselves, but you got to be ready to let those go. It's not the important things. The thing you hold on to tightly, seek first the kingdom. These other things will be added to you. If you're full of self and status and stuff, you're going to miss the feast. Uh, number three, it's when we realize just how empty we are that we can experience the fullness of the feast. Uh, like I said, those who realize just how empty they were inside are going to say yes. Those who realize how, how much they need what the master is offering um, are going to say yes. Number four, the feast is here and now. I think a lot of people want to make this parable about heaven somewhere, someday, somehow. But Jesus is talking about the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom that's here and now. Uh, it's a story about 
accepting the goodness of God. It's a story about enjoying being at the table with the master here, now. Enjoying being at the banquet with the master, a seat at the table. It's about tasting and seeing how good the Lord is right here, right now. And then finally, my, my, my last observation, none of us deserve to be at the table. In my announcement on uh, Vital Concern in Facebook, I said, who deserves to be at the table? Uh, the answer is no one. None of us deserve a seat at the table. And for all of us who think that somehow we're a little more worthy, or for those of us who think that somehow someone else is a little less worthy, we don't understand sin, which is what makes us unworthy. And we don't understand God. I mean, to think that I am more worthy than someone else, you don't understand sin. You don't understand the consequences of sin. And you certainly don't understand the grace and the goodness of God. Um, also, there's no kids' table at the banquet hall. There's no kitchen table. We're all sitting at the same table. We're all sharing with the master. And shouldn't we be excited about that? Shouldn't the very fact that we and everyone else received an invitation to the table? Uh, let me ask you a couple questions. Two quick questions. One's really easy. One's a little bit more difficult. First question, who's not welcome at God's banquet? That's the easy question, by the way. Who's not welcome at God's banquet? And the answer is, if you've been paying attention for the last uh, 30 minutes, no one. No one is not welcome. Or to put it in the positive, everyone is welcome at God's table. Everyone. And then the harder question is, who do I exclude from my world and my table? Who are the people that, that don't feel, maybe they're invited, but they don't feel comfortable in my world, in my table. You know, I, I told you that if we read these parables, we read these teachings of Jesus, they're meant to speak to us. They're not just stories. They should mold us. They should convict us. If the master refuses to exclude anyone from his table, how can I possibly allow myself to make someone else feel uncomfortable coming to the same point of grace that's been, you know, that I've been buried in. Um, I want to share with you the lyrics of a song that I, I'm sure a lot of you have heard. I think, I think it was written with this parable in mind. I, I thought about this parable. I thought, this is like the perfect song. And it's, the, the song is Crowded Table by the Highway Women. And I don't know if it's country. I don't know if it's folk. I'm not exactly sure what it is. But um, I, I really like the song. Um, on, a, on, a, on a personal level, on like a family level, you know, it, it kind of speaks to me personally. But on a spiritual level, I think it's really good. Listen to the lyrics. You can hold my hand 
when you need to let go. I can be your mountain when you're feeling valley low. I can be your street light showing you the way home. You can hold my hand when you need to let go. And then the chorus is, I want a house with a crowded table and a place at the fire for everyone. Let us take on the world while we're young and able. Bring us back together when the day is done. But the next verse is even better. If we want a garden, we're going to have to sow the seed. Plant a little happiness. Let the roots run deep. If it's love that we give, then it's love that we reap. If we want a garden, we're going to have to sow the seed. The door is always open. Your picture is on my wall. Everyone is broken and everyone belongs. I want a house with a crowded table and a place by the fire for everyone. Let's take on the world while we're young and able. Bring us back together when the day is done. We've all been invited to the table. We have all been invited to the banquet. Let's close with prayer. Then stick around. Okay, Martha's got a prayer request. Oh boy, sorry to hear that. Uh, most of you probably saw Jimmy posted that Daryl Arman's dad just passed away. And so uh, I don't know any details at all, but. Uh, Let's remember Daryl and his family. Uh, let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful that, um, that you've invited us. As unworthy as we are, as flawed as we are, as broken as we are, I'm thankful that you've allowed us a seat at the table. And Father, as we, we think about what's going on in our nation right now and all of the hurt and all of the pain that so many people are experiencing. Father, would you help us to be agents of light? Would you help us to, to, to sow love? Would you help us to uh, realize that, uh, that we're all broken? And, uh, and it's your grace and it's Jesus that heals. And, and would you heal our land? Father, we're, we're especially mindful right now of the Alderman family and the passing of Daryl's dad. Um, I pray that you'd be with that family in a special way as, uh, as they go through a, a very uh, difficult uh, time ahead. And I pray that you would bless them with your peace and with your comfort. Father, thank you for uh, the invitation and thank you for the price that was paid and the sacrifice on the cross that, that Jesus made to allow us to sit down at your table. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Give me my phone, Martha. A um, couple quick updates uh, before we go. Um, again, stay tied into Vital Concern and uh, the website and Facebook page on all the things that are going on and all the things we need to be aware of. Um, I'm going to mention again, if you're not part of a virtual group, uh, you're missing out. 
uh, we're getting more all the time and they're kind of growing all the time. And, you know, you can do it from your home. In fact, you have to do it from your home. But, um, but be a part of that. Um, thanks for being with us tonight. I want to leave you with a song. And you can leave now or you can listen to the song. You probably already know it. You already know the words to it. Thanks.